Hey everyone, welcome back to Illuminate, a podcast series from Hope Fellowship Church, where we share stories to inspire growth and encourage engagement in our community. I'm Hannah Bowen, Worship Arts Coordinator, and I'm co-hosted by Nathan Beer, College and Connections Group Pastor at Hope. And today we're joined by the legendary Chris Kilgore. Those of you who've been coming to Hope for a while might recognize him from times he's spoken in years past, or maybe you're privileged enough to know him as a friend. And today we are so excited to have a conversation with him about faith and politics and the way we interact with the world from a Christ-centered perspective. This is just the first part of a long conversation, but we hope you enjoy. We are joined by none other than Chris Kilgore. Um, We are ecstatic to have him on here today. We're talking about a lot of different things, and so we just want to get into this conversation. But before we do, uh, Chris, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Um, And this is Chris Kilgore. Full name is Christian uh, with a K, so uh, if you're writing that down, that'll that'll be helpful. Um, I'm 40... um, I was born in 1977 in June, so whatever the math is, I'm 40, 40, it is 43. And so I grew up in a, uh, not a pastor's home, but a staff pastor's home. So my father was a children's pastor in the Church of God. Um, so it's a Pentecostal denomination. That is my background. It's my history. And uh, I am also a uh, minister now. I pastor in Greenwood, South Carolina. I am uh, technically, in our denomination, I am a bishop, So which feels odd to not have a big hat to wear. I mean, I just, I feel like I get cheated out of the hat, but uh, I'm a bishop. And so uh, I, I've been connected with Hope since uh, 2000, well, forever, because Mark was actually the pastor of Hope, was my youth pastor in the early 90s. I was, wow. Mark had a mullet, and uh, I still have a picture that I'll run across every now and then of Mark with this, just this flowing mane, and uh, really like this gigantic uh, purple short sleeve shirt and a tie. It was wonderful. Anyway, um, but he was my youth pastor, and so... Um, he, he left to, uh, he joined the assemblies and then he obviously eventually planted hope. And so in 2008, I started um, visiting as a speaker and um, just a, as a humorous intro story. For the first week that I came to hope, I just came as, as a visitor just to be a part of things because I was going to preach the next week. And um, so I, I do have a long beard and it was much longer then and my hair was longer then. And um, so some of the people at hope actually thought I was homeless because they were in the storefront and that was not a, something that didn't happen. And they just thought I wandered in because of the, the bagels and the coffee. And so then next week when I got up to preach, some of them had no clue what was going on. I was told that later on that they thought, that is, why is he standing up on stage? And is it like a mutiny? And so uh, and so a, uh, it, that, that's, that's how I entered into the Hope culture. And uh, so have I've preached off and on. I've been privileged to preach off and on and, and to fill in for Mark at times. And, and just it's, it's a beautiful community. I've enjoyed it the whole time. So I haven't been back in couple years at least. And so I, because I am now pastoring uh, actively and full time. So, so I've been married for 14 years, 14 years in December. <laughs> we can reverse that on the podcast. Like if you can actually insert that in the beginning of the intro and, uh, and to my wife, Nisha, who is wonderful and younger than I am. And, uh, and I have two kids, a 12 year old uh, daughter named Karsten and an eight year old son named Asher. And I love them all. They're wonderful. We have three dogs, uh, two little dogs who are um, old and churlish and and one uh, middle-aged uh, Springer Spaniel who is um, much better than all the other people in our house. So uh, it's, uh, that's, that's life. <laughs> I think we're really, what we're really wanting to talk about today and constantly come back to, I think, um, is in what ways should our Christ-based faith um, 
impact how we interact with worldly issues, uh, with programs, with politics, and with people. How does our faith, you know, drive us to each of those and, mm-hmm. and influence every single one of those avenues? Um, and I would say at times, like, not just impact, but supersede. Absolutely. You know, how do we um, discern situations, conversations where faith needs to come first, even when it's scary, mm-hmm. um, versus just, you know, driving, you know, both foundational, but then also the forefront. Just kind of to, to flow in off of, off of what you said, that this, the text in Colossians, Colossians is a very political letter by Paul. It has a lot of, of political implications. And, and obviously, I think it's, it's important to remember that the entire New Testament is written not in a favorable uh, culture to Christianity. So the whole thing is written uh, where, where the entire world doesn't either care about Christianity or is actively persecuting Christianity. And, and so to, 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 to hear Paul, to hear John, to hear Peter, to, to hear the Gospels, all of this is written as revolution language. And, and, and so revolutions are difficult because revolutions create tension. Revolutions don't only create tension between the revolutionaries and the system that's in place, but they create tension within the revolution itself. And I think part of, part of, of, of the angst that we feel in our world now, I think we felt for a long time because uh, even if you look at the American Revolution, like people disagreed all through the American Revolution that we're on the same team. Right. But there's this text Paul says in... in um, in Colossians, he, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, he says that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, uh, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, he intentionally uses those, that language of domain and kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those ideas have to do with governance. They have to do with, with headship and leadership. And, and so we, we, we use the term politics, I think, a little too freely sometimes when we're supposed to be using the term governance. And, and so our, our issue is not with politics, because politics has to do with policies and, and influence, essentially, is what those words kind of come from root-wise. But the frustrating part for us, and, and for everyone, save that unsafe, Christian and unchristian, is that we have to be governed. And we hate that because we're ferociously independent and we're ferociously arrogant at, at a core level. And a lot has to be crucified out of us if we want to be happy, really. But, but we are fiercely independent, and, and yet we know that without governance and without structure, we're going to struggle to ever find any progress. So you have these competing desires. Um, one is for progress and, and advancement, and the other is for independence and autonomy. And those things don't work together well. And so even within the same revolutionary, like within my heart, myself, there is this war going on. Then you put me into a church filled with, you know, there's this old rabbinic expression where um, if, you have, um, if you have any two rabbis in the same room at one time, then you have three opinions. The, the church literally works that way. So whatever the amount of people you have in the room, multiply that by 1.5. That's the amount of opin- opinions that you have in that room together. Then you take that group and, and, and pit it against a world that believes differently about spiritual things and deep things. So it's a, very, it's a, it's a, it's a topic of, of great passion for mm. most everybody at this point. And, uh, and so I, I know that whereas I, 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 my intention is to be dispassionate about it, be, to try and approach it more um, you know, academically, spiritually, there's always going to be a part of me that gets frustrated. Like that's so I've watched college football long enough that... That, that line is really blurred like when you cross into that oh, that kind of stuff so um well and i think that's the ironic part of this conversation is that um, we're addressing something to where as christians we need to have that almost 
our faith informs everything. And yet we feel sometimes so passionate about it that even though we're having that discussion, it could easily slip into the opposite of that. Jesus wasn't a Republican or Democrat. And people would like honestly just probably have hysteria, mass hysteria over that. Well, the the ironic part is, is that it, it, it starts out with, yeah, I know. But you can't be a Christian and be a right. this. So it's it's always like, it's like, oh yeah, I can't disagree with you because technically you're right, but I really disagree with you, and and I have to tell you why. I mean, it right. it, it it's so strange. Is <laughs> there such a there's such a, a harsh division between between thought and feeling in in politics? It's so bizarre to me that we are so reliant on something like this to be a source of hope. I, I realize how important order is. Because chaos is something that we hate, and change is something that we hate. And chaos is like change exploded. And so we hate even good change. But, but we, we want order to the point that we're willing to sacrifice so many other things. And I, I think that's, that's a, it's an indictment on, on humanity, for one thing. But it's, it's an indictment on the church especially, because I, I get it for 4,000 years. Like I get that we, we wanted that order because after Eden there was nothing other than chaos. But after Jesus comes, like it creates, supposed to create a different context for us to think through these issues. And, and we've done, for 300, 400 years, we did it great until Constantine. Post-Constantine, we've done a terrible job of it. And so you know, we've, we've got 1,700 years now of history when things were supposed to be different that they haven't been as different as they should have been. And, and that's frustrating to me. I mean, because I'm in, I'm in that soup too. Like I'm being cooked in the same pot. When we talk about politics and, and Christianity and, and how faith is supposed, supposed to inform us, there will always be there will always be a chasm between where we are and where we want to be until you know the fullness of revelation takes place whatever you believe about eschatology you know at some point we all wind up in the same chapter at the end of revelation and so however we get there you know there's a lot of disagreement but but we wind up in this place where suddenly governance makes sense like I think that that's the great hope that we have. It's not just that every tear is wiped away and that everybody's healed and that the dead have risen. It's that finally this angst that we've been feeling for 6,000 years of recorded history is done. Like it finally makes sense that there is one God who is going to rule and lead and we are not going to hate him for ruling and leading. Like there's this beautiful thing at the end. And, and so Christians, when we get tied down with what is going on now in 2020 in an election season with, with candidates who are making mistakes and who have made mistakes, who have track records that we hate, and, and then worldwide that just explodes outward in the same way. At some point, if we're going to let faith inform this, I, I do think that we have to continue to remember that at the end it's not just that we're raptured away or that, we, that, that God comes back with a sword in his mouth cutting people down. It is that our, our actual end goal is that God rules in the way that we have been longing for somebody to rule over us. Um, the rebellious children finally figure out that the parent has loved them enough to walk with them through the journey that they needed to become people who were happy and fulfilled. So um, that, that's, so that's and again, that's, that's about as shotgun as I can work through the last half of the New Testament. But... Um, <laughs> It's a good shotgun. I think then at that point, um, I think we then start this conversation with whatever you're about to hear for the rest of this podcast, whatever is about to be talked about, no matter what it is, with all the differences that, you know, if you're listening may have a disagreement with or anything like that, uh, how then do we continue to love those who think differently, 
who act differently, who believe differently, not necessarily Christ crucified, uh, Jesus's oneness with the Father, not, none of that necessarily. Mm-hmm. So let's just take away those seven principles, right, that are foundational to the Christian faith that the early church fathers said, these are foundational and these cannot be uh, skimped out on it or not believed to be a Christian. But all those other things, everything that the body of Christ um, becomes divided over, how then do we continue to love those that think differently? And then maybe another sub-question to that. Um, is where is that line of agreeing to disagree and this person, I need I need to step into their life and correct something in their life about the way that they're living, about what they're thinking, about what even programs they're supporting, about all of these things. Where is that line of that's their belief, that's how they've interpreted this verse, vice versa type mm-hmm. thing. What, where, what would you say to all of that? Sure. sure. Uh, first, I, I think it is, it's a curious question because it's, it's not a brand new question. How do we love people who disagree with us how do we love even even if you take again how do we love people who are diametrically opposed to us uh, because at some point that the great commandment does not necessarily uh, specify when it says love God and love people love your neighbor as yourself neighbor doesn't necessarily mean all oh, the saved people neighbor neighbor means the people who live in the same neighborhood as you and and when it's a godward perspective the earth is the neighborhood and so uh, how do we love people who are completely like how how, how does a diehard capitalist love a diehard socialist. Like at some point, you're talking about things that have formed and inf- and informed people's identity. The pushback is that we don't want to affirm someone who we believe is wrong because we're afraid of allowing somebody to continue in wrongness. Um, be- because I think, to our credit, we think that that's detrimental to them as a person. That is me giving a lot of credit to people who may not be motivated in that way, but I hope that we are. I hope at our best we disagree with people passionately because we actually believe what we're saying and we want them to have a better life. Mm-hmm. But, but the ironic thing is it, 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 it compromises what we believe if we don't love people. Yeah. Like when we say, how do I love people who disagree with me? Well, at some point... You're not called to agree with everybody. You are called to love everybody. Like, that's what God said first. And so uh, it, it, is, it, is, it shouldn't be that tough for us to, to sort of hang the primary motivation of our heart on what God said was primary instead of moving straight to secondary and then allowing primary to be bolted onto the side. And that, that's a lot of imagery for, for a podcast that has no video. But, but, like, what that brings up then is this idea that I do think there's a disconnect between loving people and treating people with love. See, it is easy to say, I love you. If I can look at you two across this table, it's easy to say, I love you, and never do a single thing to actually treat you like I love you. And that sounds good when we first meet. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's wonderful if we're passing by at a grocery store and I say, you know, Jesus loves you and I love you too. But, but at some point, if, if you have a flat tire in the parking lot and I come rolling out and say, well, I'm sorry, I've got some dairy products and I've got to get this home now. So I'm going to leave you to your own flat tire. What I'm doing is I'm telling you one thing and I'm acting another way. It is not enough to use love as, 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 as language. It has to function in praxis or it doesn't work. It's not the same thing. And so I think um, when you start reading through like 1 Corinthians 13, are we treating the people who we disagree with like 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to? Like, is that how we're doing it? Because I don't think it is. And I think that's, that's where the Christian faith has no witness outside of praxis. The Christian faith has no, like, we are not a verbal community. We are an active community. Now, we say words, we use words. Jesus is the word made flesh. So, yeah, words are 
incredibly important, and they set the table, but they are not the meal. Like at some point, we've been setting the table and asking people to sit down and feeding them nothing for a long time, or, or at least by and large. Yeah. And so what, we, what, what the question implies is, like, how do I love people who I disagree with? Well, you treat them like you would treat somebody who you agree with. Yeah. Like the way you treat them should not be altered by your disagreement with them. The way you treat them should be based on something that is more foundational than your opinions or your beliefs about the world, politics, even religion at some point. like that, that's, that's where Christianity loses some of its credibility because it says these things and then doesn't do these things when we are profoundly about the doing and not just the saying. And so when Jesus calls his disciples, Jesus does not call them in a compulsory way. He does not look at Peter and say, all right, follow me or else. It is an invitation Christianity will always be an invitation. If you move into the place where you're forcing people to do something or forcing them, so you have to believe this way. Okay, so I'm, I'm a Democrat and you have to believe like me if you're a Republican or else we can't have Christian fellowship. I'm not inviting you into anything. I am forcing you to comply before I'm willing to open up the means of relationship. And, and that's not how this works. And so, or, you know, that goes either way. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. So I, I, I use that just to be... I, I, edgy, I suppose, in the evangelical church. But Jesus doesn't demand compliance. Jesus asks for an opportunity. Yeah. Like we're, we're not asking people to change their minds. We're asking them to come get near us. And then hopefully there's enough spirit in us and there's enough passion and wind in us that's going to blow in a certain direction that it changes the way people think. We, we, we get them in the same room as Jesus and let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. Like that. And, and again, and then maybe they vote differently, maybe they don't. Maybe their economic theory is different, or maybe it's not. I mean, that, that's really not our concern on the back end. Our concern, first and foremost, is whether or not I've loved them well enough to introduce them to the one who loved me while I was still a sinner. So uh, that, that has a lot to do with that idea of, of, of love. I, I think in, in thinking of all this, and I'm trying to write down as much as I can, so I'm taking notes on this, so that's hilarious. But um, <laughs> it, treating people with love, I think, starts from a misconception of what love actually is. And I think that's because we live in a fallen world, and so there are constantly other things trying to steal our thoughts away from Christ. Um, I was listening to a conversation between Francis Chan, K.P. Johan, and uh, Hank Hagerin, the Bible Answer Man. What's his last name? Hanegraaff. Hanegraaff, thank you. And one of them um, was just talking about unity of Christ and how so often there becomes this uh, division because... In our life, we're called to look to Christ. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to constantly be looking to Christ. And the moment that we take our eyes off and we start to look at other people, then what happens is we say, you're over here, you're over here, you're wrong because, well, I'm 10 steps ahead of you. But in reality, if we're not looking to the, as he calls it, the crystal Christ, mm-hmm. then we don't realize that we're, ten, we're still 10 million miles away. They're just 10 million miles and 10 steps away, yeah, yeah. right? And I think if we're always coming at people from that perspective of I am just looking at Christ. And that doesn't mean we just ignore everyone else. It means I'm looking at Christ, and that provides this humility in me that then allows to treat people with love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that we that a lot of times, and I find myself doing this all the time, where we have pride start to seep in, where we say that 
I cannot be wrong because this is how scripture is interpreted. If I could, if I had $5 for every single time I have changed a viewpoint on some <laughs> theological position in the Bible, I would be a trillion, I would be more than a trillionaire, right? <laughs> and that's just as, uh, you know, uh, as, as I'm continuing to search for truth, we search for truth wherever it may lead us, mm-hmm. right? They said that last night in that discussion that I was listening to. We search for truth wherever it leads us, but all of that takes humility. Treating people with love takes humility because we have to come at it from a point of just because I am treating this person with love and truly loving them doesn't mean that I'm agreeing with everything that they say, even if they think that's what it means. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where we our pride starts to step in is, well, I can't love this person because if I do, then they think I agree with them, but I don't agree with them. So I just have to let them know that I don't agree with them before I step in and love them. And then at that point, the love has been divided because now it's this love, but at the back of that person's mind that you're treating with, you know, if you're truly treating with that person with love, they're like, well, you know, they've just said that they disagree with every single aspect of my life essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's this constant balance of, of the way that we, I think we do that balance well is by constantly coming at it with this viewpoint of humility through the gospel, yeah. that yeah. if we're truly looking at Christ, we see how far we have to go as well. We see that we don't know everything, and we are also on this journey of truth. Whether you're 23, 40, 60, 100 years old, even if you're 100, mm-hmm. you still are on a journey for truth. Right. And we don't feel, we don't get that full culmination and revealing of truth until whatever you believe about what you said about eschatology, whether you're in heaven right when you died, yeah. we don't even yeah. get into that in this sure. discussion. Yeah. But um, I think that's that's where the misconception starts is is the treating people with love. And I really want to emphasize that because I think that's so, so important is that it's not just saying you love someone, it's showing that you love someone. Yeah, I feel like there are three big ideas that you both hit on that I want to like really call out for a second. One, that if you're loving someone um, and having trouble loving someone because of a certain viewpoint you see in their life or a certain behavior you see in your life, and that's disrupting your love for someone, your love is conditional. Like, that's the first red flag, <laughs> that you, you are practicing a conditional love, which is not what we're called into. Two, uh, if you are searching for truth in Scripture and that Scripture is never proving you wrong, then you should question your approach <laughs> to reading Scripture. That's a really good point. <laughs> um, and then three, uh, constantly assessing that in disciple-making, are you striving to make other people image bearers of Christ, are you are you pursuing um, that calling in their life to be made in the image of God, or are you making them in your image? Because I feel like that's something I do, is I start with, you know, what have I learned? Um, what have I grown in? Where am I at? And then I want the same thing for someone else, and it starts with a good intent, but it, it inevitably leads me to desire the wrong things for someone's life instead of pointing them to Christ and pointing them to myself. Yeah, to, to that last point, it was, it was really good. I, I think when we move past the cross event in the New Testament, we, like, I think too, too often we, we approach it, we kneel down, we ask forgiveness, and then we move away from it because we assume there's something else. Mm-hmm. But, but the cross event is the crux of not just the gospel, but it's the crux of all freedom. And, and so there, there's this, there's this uh, um, scene in, in Pilgrim's Progress where, where Christian walks up to the cross and he's wearing this backpack that's been weighing him down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he, he, he's been carrying all of this burden, right? And he finally makes it to this place and he looks up at this cross, he gazes, and he realizes that when he 
leaves this moment. He doesn't have to carry this burden anymore. And so he takes that knapsack off and he drops it over on the side of the road and he's set free from the things he's been carrying. And I think at some point I would just kind of push back on myself and everybody else in this season and this culture and this you know environment that we're in. Are we less burdened because we're talking about politics or are we more burdened? Because I think if we're more burdened, then we're not experiencing the freedom the cross is supposed to bring us. Like, that's why we come back and gaze upon Jesus in the Gospels and say, I don't have to carry this anymore. Like, I don't have to be angry with people because they disagree with me anymore. I don't have to feel the tension. Like, this is dividing households. This is dividing generations. Like, it is creating a moment in our culture that, that is going to be hard to walk back because it's not just we're getting to a cliff. I mean, people are just willingly jumping off of that cliff. And that is some of those decisions people are making, some of the words that are being uttered around dinner tables, some of the phone calls and text messages that are, that are happening in families that have been close for years are dividing them in ways that are going to be almost impossible to repair outside of miracles of grace. And, and I just think at some point, as Christians, we're supposed to walk back to the cross and say, you know what, 25 years ago, I was here for the first time and I was set free, but I've, I've, accumulated a ton of stuff over the last six months, and I don't want to carry it anymore. And Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take, I'll, you know, I'll take your yoke, you take my yoke, we'll walk this out together so that you're free. And, and at some point, that's what the cross does for us in this kind of season. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't just save people, it sets people free who have been saved already. And, and, and that kind of example, that kind of humility for Christians to say, I need this again. I need that moment again where I stop carrying this stuff and I can be free in my conversation so I don't have to hate you because I'm, because I'm telling you, burdens cause us to react to things like burdens of stress, anxiety, you know, mental illness, physical problems. They cause us to lash out because we don't have the patience to have conversations in civil ways. And, and so we're carrying so much weight and density that when we come into a conversation with somebody who we disagree with, we are on a spring. And all they've got to do is hit that trigger and suddenly we launch at them with all of the weight that we've been carrying that they had no idea we carried into the conversation. And, and so that creates this tense, warlike sort of environment. And that atmosphere cannot bring freedom. War doesn't bring freedom. War brings two losers, one who fought better than the other, but they both lost because there's always casualties. God says, I don't bring casualties. Death in my life brought life for everyone else. And so when you come to that death that was central and you lay down all the other stuff that you have, then you will come back to life. You'll be risen with me again. And so I think you know, that, that freedom that comes from centering on what Jesus did, because there's a humility. And that was, when you mentioned that, that was what triggered my mind. The humility that it takes to say, I know I was saved, but I need the cross again, is the humility of dying to the things that we've been trying to hold tightly to. Because I feel like we, could we can talk about programs and politics and all of these things, and those things maybe should be touched on. But I think what you just said is something that should always remain the central theme of any conversation that we have i think that's where we start to go where we start to go wrong in our conversations with people that differ from us is that we start to go away from that viewpoint of christ and we start to compartmentalize even the conversation and say okay we got talking about christ out of the way now let's talk about politics yeah, yeah. right yeah. and it's like well wait, wait 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 you know those things are are not even strewn together it's just talking about christ in general and christ then i mean radically changes I think that's what you said um, earlier. I'm trying to remember exactly what you said, but you said something about um, 
you know, we're not trying to get someone to look like us. We're just trying to get them to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. Follow Christ. He, he didn't say follow me or else, right? That's I think what you said. Yeah. He said just follow me. And I think that's what we always uh, differ from. Whether you are right, whether you are genuinely right in what you're arguing for or whether you are wrong, it's not about that. It's about first getting them to Christ. Yeah. And I think whenever you sever that bridge, we then are not fulfilling a call that God has placed in every single person's life. And that may just be too brutal. We may just need to cut that out. But I think that that's really the, that's really the, the main thing is we have to keep Christ the center of every single conversation that we have, whether it's about programs, politics, food, maybe everything in life. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as we're coming at it from that perspective, um, I, we can probably still go wrong because we're humans. But I think that that's a good basis to start from is is that understanding that I need Christ in every compartment of my life. I can compartmentalize other aspects of my life. Work stays here. Family's over here. Um, all those things. But Christ should be over every single right. one of those. And we're, we're constantly working towards it. The first church in, in Revelation 2, the Ephesian church that, that John you know, was told by Jesus, I want you to write this to this church. The whole point of the, that first little letter to them, the postcard that he sent, was you do everything right except you've lost this idea that, that there was a center point. There was a benchmark when you started this thing. And so, like, you reach back into the, the, in, into the book of Acts and you see that, like, they're, they're chucking, like, incantation books in the street and setting fire to stuff that, that, would, that, would, that would, you know, essentially be, be an economic uh, sort of, sort of a crazy economic uh, shift in that culture, in that city. It changes the whole city's life. And and he says, in the beginning, you didn't care who knew what you were. You just knew that I was enough. And and you didn't care what they saw in the streets. You just knew that I was enough. Now you've you've gotten all the systems and you've gotten the programs right and you've gotten your doctrine right and you're worshiping like you think you should. But you've lost that center point. You've lost that 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 gravitational pull into what is most important. So so what you said is so powerful because. If, if we're ever just getting Jesus out of the way so we can talk about something else, like almost like it's just a compulsory thing, like, or, or, or you know, where Jesus is the prerequisite of the conversation and not the primary point of the conversation, we will lose out on the ability to actually have a conversation that leads to transformation. And, and so that, that's, that's frustrating. I mean, I, I think it's not, I mean, for a lot of us, but also I think it's frustrating for God. Like he sent Jesus because he loved the world. Not because he wanted us to figure it out on our own, but because he was going to do things that we could not do. And he asked us to worship and align our lives with him. When we see people who disagree with us profoundly in, in every way, that is a person who Jesus died for. I think, you know, it's an old Max Lucado book, I think. One of them. He's written like a thousand books. But there's one where he, he was talking about a guy who had this, who he and his brother had, had gotten... Um, in an argument when they were younger, had basically just divided their lives. They weren't talking to one another. And he saw his brother on the street, and there's still this anger, just this deep anger, resentment. And and so he he go their paths actually cross, and he said he looked at him in the face for the first time in years because they just avoided each other's lives. And he said when he looked into his face, he saw the face of his father. His brother resembled his father so much, and he could not maintain the anger because of the resemblance that he had to one that the guy loved. I I think when we see other people, if we can see the love of God toward them, it changes the way that we see them. And so suddenly it's not about an argument. It's about a relationship. And and so, I mean, at, at some point we should envision people in front of the cross with Christ hanging there, bleeding for us because of the great love of God. And if you can remain angry at somebody after you've seen what Jesus went through because of them and because of you, the same thing, 
if you can be angry with them for that, then, then maybe the cross hasn't affected us like it should have. Because I don't think there's any way to remain angry at somebody who God loves that much. Uh, not for long. You can be frustrated. You can disagree. All those things are fine. But, but when we see them through the lens of the cross, it changes everything. People are not numbers and people are not positions and people are not points of view. People are, are souls who God loved enough to die. That should soften us. It should soften us. I mean, profoundly in this season, regardless of who's running and putting ads out. take a pause in our conversation for here today but don't worry we'll be back next week with more of this discussion between nathan chris and myself on politics and the interplay of faith with the way we interact with the world around us i hope you've enjoyed this portion of the conversation give it time to sink in uh, and if you found value in what you've heard today share it with a friend drop them a link let them know about our podcast, get the word out, and we'll continue the rest of this discussion right here next week.